Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. How are you guys? Yeah. God, I thank you for the blessing of your presence in every area of our lives, God. God, I thank you that it that your presence is, is in every area of our life, God, that it's in our, in our homes, in our marriages, God, in our relationships. God, it's in our workplace, it's in our jobs, it's in our finances, God, that, that, that every area of our life is yielded, submitted to you. And we just thank you, God, and we welcome and invite you into every area of our life. God, that nothing would be off limits. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Um, how are you guys? You doing good? It's good to see you this morning. Um, you know, I think I think there's probably an expectation that people have of a response from the church to what's going on in in the country right now. And, um, and I just, I want to say this, and this is all we're going to say on it for now, or all I'm going to say on it for now is that, um, that if we as His people would be as diligent to seek out and go after areas of compromise in our own lives as we are to seek out and go after areas of compromise we see in others, we would probably see a lot less things in this world that we need to stand up and speak that way against. I'm not saying it's not it's okay to or it's bad to say anything. You know, you speak as God gives you words and, and I do believe that there is a place for us to to speak truth into those we have relationship with. And I think it's not only a, a place that we can, but I believe it's a place that we should. Um and as God leads and as God gives us words, we speak truth into places. Jesus didn't hold back from speaking uncomfortable truth to people, but he always did it as the Father was speaking. Not just because he had to say something, but because he had something to say. And I'd encourage us as a people to, to do the same and to follow his footsteps. I'd also say this, that for so long, we've leaned on the law to say what can and can't, what should and shouldn't happen. And if we live by that sword, we'll die by that sword. If we as his people can demonstrate a way of living that makes the world jealous for what we have, we won't need legislature to show people the way that Jesus called us to live. If the church would follow Jesus and love and be an example of what it is to be a new creation and live the life He's called us to live, there would be less need for laws and a whole lot more people that wanted to follow Jesus because of what they see in our lives. Legislation is a poor standard for morality. And it's a poor substitute for relationship. Okay. Now that that's settled. Because Jesus said that, right? He told Peter, he said, if you live by that sword, you'll die by that sword. In other words, if that's the way that you count, if that's the thing that you count on to keep you safe, if that's the thing that you count on, then that will be the thing that causes your ruin. And if we are living by the sword of government, we will die by the sword of government. 
You guys, when marriage has become so cheapened in the church that the divorce rates in the church are just as high as divorce rates outside of the church, is it any wonder that the world doesn't respect marriage covenant any more than the church seems to? That's not to be harsh. That's saying that there's something that we don't see in covenant. There's some part of that that we're not displaying. There's something that we're missing. There's a, there's a respect for and a love for and a, and, and a desire to see the, the kingdom of heaven displayed in our marriages and in our relationships that's lacking or the world would be provoked to jealousy and want what we have. People tried to buy what the disciples have. In a time, listen, we've been fortunate. We've lived in a country where for a lot of, uh, of the time that we've lived here, the laws have reflected biblical values. There's people who have not had that luxury, and yet they've had the, the task and the, and the requirement of God in their lives that they would live an example that would make people want what they have. We cannot lean on laws to make people want to follow Jesus. It doesn't work. It can't work. It's not supposed to. The government of Jesus is not run by nine men in robes and women in robes. The government of Jesus rests on the shoulder of His people who follow Him and show the world what it is to walk out the life that Jesus called us to live. So, I'm, I'm all for having conversations with people and I'm all for speaking truth, but I'm saying if we would spend the time looking at the areas of small compromise in our lives, we would have a lot more to show the world that was worth having. And they might actually even come to us and want what we have rather than us have to go to them and try to get them to take it. This is a good word. I know it is because I can find it in the Bible. I can find examples of people wanting what the disciples had because they walked in an authority and in an uncommon love and in a boldness. It said that they reasoned that these men were unlearned men, but they knew that they had been with Jesus because of the confidence they lived their life with. There's a confidence that comes from knowing who you are in Christ and understanding the covenant that you have with Him and believing that you are who He said you are that makes you walk in a way that people notice. And that people cannot help but notice. And it doesn't matter if they agree with you politically. See, that's the beauty of it, is that it doesn't matter if they agree with you politically, they cannot deny the way that you love them. And sooner or later, when they cannot find that same love in the way that they're going, they may come back and ask you how, where you got what you have from, and they may actually want what you have. And then you have an easy, easy opportunity to evangelize because sharing the gospel with people who want what you have is a whole lot easier than trying to get people to take something that they don't want. It's why they make kids' medicine taste like bubblegum. Because it's a whole lot easier to get your kids to take their medicine if they actually like it and want what you have than trying to force something disgusting down their throats, you guys. It's the same thing with Christianity. If we would live the life that Jesus called us to live, we would have something so attractive that people would want it and they would come and seek us out to find, what is it that you have? I must have it. It's the power of God being displayed through our lives. You guys, I'm telling you, that will win way more people to Christ than any political argument that you can have. Just want to say welcome to Outreach Church and thank you guys so much for coming. Um, my name's Roy. I get the honor and the privilege of being the ringleader of this circus that we call Outreach Church. And um, I, I, I'm just kidding. I, I, I get the honor of being uh, called pastor. Um, 
it's something I'm having to become more comfortable with because as more and more people come that don't know me, they call me Pastor Roy, and I'm like, oh, would you just call me Roy? <laughs> you know, but, I, and I, I get it. It's, a, it's something they mean in honor, and I'm not at all ridiculing or scolding people for saying that. It's just something I'm having to grow comfortable with. Um, well, we've, we've been talking about covenant. We're going to be talking about covenant for a while. Um, for the past few weeks, we talked about different steps of covenant, but I just want to take some time this week to kind of go over some some, so what does that look like for us and some things that come with that. We talked about the, the walls of blood and how God with Abraham had Abraham lay out the, the animals and they would take the animals, split them in half. They would arrange the rib cages like this and the blood from the animals would run down between and they would pass through these, these um, split in half animals while making covenants, basically um, saying, let it be done to me as was done to these animals. Should I forsake the terms of the covenant? They would promise uh, their lives to each other. They would both pass through and how God passed through this thing and, and he passed through the, the walls of blood and then how Jesus, and I'm just trying to recap real quickly in case you weren't here, but how Jesus um, came and he said, I am... The door to the Father. No man goes to the Father except through me. He said, I'm the way. And how when they nailed Him to the cross, in what they thought was being really cruel, they were actually reenacting what God had instituted for His people in Passover when they took the blood of a spotless lamb and they placed it on the lintel above the door and they placed it on the posts on the sides of the door and all who passed through that door into the house and pass through that wall of blood and that, that blood above the door would be passed over and would not be judged. And, and then Jesus says, I am the door. He literally called Himself a door. And, and they nailed Him to the cross and they put a crown of thorns in His head and what they thought they were doing in cruelty was recreating that as the door to the Father stood there with blood running down the sides and blood running down the top. And He said, I'm the door if you come through Me to the Father. And so that was the walls of blood reenacted by Jesus. Then we talked about the exchange of names where God took His own name, the sound that they would say that meant the breath of God, and He placed that into Abram, and Abram becomes Abraham in the very name of God. And God, who introduces Himself earlier in the chapter as El Shaddai, the God Almighty, becomes the next time He addresses someone and says who He is, He declares that He is the God of Abraham. So He puts His name into Abraham, and He takes Abraham's name into Himself. And he goes from being called El Shaddai to introducing himself to, to Jacob, to Isaac, as the God of Abraham, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He takes every time he makes covenant with those people, he takes their name and gives his name to them until eventually he ends up with Israel, the God of Israel. And the name Israel means one who contends with God. And Jesus, the Messiah, comes. And He's the Son of God, but over and over again as He's here on earth, He calls Himself the Son of Man. When the demons see Him, they ask Him, what do you want with us, Son of Man? Jesus said, I am the Son of Man. Son of Man. Over and over again, He calls Himself Son of Man. And then He dies on a cross and this exchange happens when we become born again in Him. And the Son of Man of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could be called the sons of God. Behold what love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the sons of God and such we are. So there's this covenant exchange that's happening. And we see it played out even in marriage and we don't even understand what we're doing. 
right? We talked about this, right? Like when you come into a wedding and they seat you, bride's side, groom's side, and they divide you by blood, and then the bride stands at the back and they play the march, and everyone stands, and the bride passes through walls of blood on either side down to the front to make covenant. And then there's an exchange of names that goes on. As the bride takes on the name of the bridegroom. See, we don't even know what we're doing a lot of times and we're reenacting a covenant made by God. So what does that mean for us? And we talked about the fact that we now have His name and that we became righteous, that we became the sons of God. You know, behold what manner of love the Father has given upon us that we should be called sons of God and such we are. So our identity changes. We go from being the sons of men to being sons and daughters of God. And that's amazing, but... But even more than that, that, that now Jesus said there's things that come with that. That it's not just the title, that it actually means something. And this is what he's saying when he was talking. He said, therefore I tell you, whatsoever things you ask in my name, they will be done. They will be given to you. He wasn't just saying end your prayer with in Jesus' name. He was saying because you're in my name, because you're in covenant with me, when you ask, it's as if I'm asking and you can have confidence before the Father that you will receive because your receiving is not based on who you are and what you've done, but because who you've become in me and because of what I've done. And there's things that come with that. There's, there, there's, there's these, these amazing exchanges that go on. And, and one of the things that I think that happens, the greatest thing that happens through all of that is that insecurity is once and for all dealt with forever. See, becoming the son and daughter of God, becoming born again, becoming a new creation, and having our identity changed and taking on the name of Jesus and being adopted into the family of God should forever end insecurity, both with people and with God. I'm spitting. I'm so excited up here. <laughs> right? So think about this. John chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 17. Verse 22, because we read these things sometimes, and I think sometimes we don't understand or, or, or we don't reread them with a different lens and we get a partial meaning. And that's what I love about the Word. It's why we need to know the Word, study, and read the Word is because it can speak so many different things in so many different seasons. Verses that I read 10 years ago that meant this to me and were so significant when I read them 10 years later mean that to me and they're just as significant. And I see different facets of God in them. And so Jesus is praying here. He's talking. If you, if you have not read John chapter 16 or 17 lately, I would recommend read it constantly. Because it's Jesus in the garden and He's praying. And He says, my prayer is not only for them, talking about the disciples, but for those who will believe in their testimony. So He's praying for you in the garden. He's on His knees before the Father, praying for you, praying for me. And one of the things that he prays is he says this, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, that we have your written word that we can see and hear, and know, and study, and memorize, and highlight, and eat, and, and take Your Word into us, that our minds can comprehend, that we have the mind of Christ to be able to understand by the Holy Spirit the things that You're speaking to us. That our ears would be open to hear. 
that our hearts would be good soil, God, that they would receive your word and bring forth fruit in our lives, God, that a world that is desperately in need of you would taste the fruit of our lives and know that you're good. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus here is talking, right? And he's talking to the Father and he says, the glory which you've given to me, I've given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me. What he's saying is, I'm in covenant with them, you're in covenant with me, that they would be in unity together the way we are in unity together. That we have covenant with the Father because we have covenant through the Son. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I'm bringing a new covenant and with covenant with me brings you into covenant with the Father because they're one. Okay, we understand that. And so Jesus is saying that and he says, I'm desiring that they would be in covenant relationship with each other the same way that we are in covenant relationship with each other, an unending relationship, in an unending friendship, and an unending love for each other. He says that the world would know that you sent me. See, there's something about when we walk in true love for each other, submitting our lives and laying our lives down to each other that brings people to the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Especially in a world that more and more every day becomes individualized. And do what makes you happy. Do what makes you feel good. Where everything is about me. Where everything is about my rights. Where everything is about me having what I want and nobody can tell me what I can or can't do. In a world that is set up to give us, to make us feel like we have the right to have every single thing that our heart would ever desire. God said, listen, here's how they will know that, that, that Jesus said, this is how they'll know that you sent me, God. Is when we see people who actually walk in submission, yielded one to another the way I am with you. Because remember, here's Jesus praying to the Father. If there be any other way, Father, I ask that you would take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. Never feel bad if what you want doesn't look like what the Father has spoken to you. As long as you have the ability to bow your knee and submit your will to His. It's okay if your will doesn't line up with His will for a moment. As long as the minute you understand His will, you let your will go away and you let His will be the one that you follow for life. See, rebellion is to know the will of the Father and do otherwise. And it's not that God wants us to not do that because He doesn't want us to sin because He hates sin. He hates sin because He doesn't want us to live in less than His plan is for our lives. It's not that He's in heaven offended by sin. It's that He's in heaven hurt for us because He sees us choosing less than Him. And anything less than the Father is less than His best for us. And so when we compromise and choose something less, it grieves him, not because he's in heaven going, I just cannot believe they did that to me. I told them. He's not doing that. It's not vindictive. It's not the angry that you did that to me. He's not hurt by it. He's hurt for us. Because he sees us making a choice that leads us into something less than his best for our lives. And so Jesus is saying, Father, that they would be one. And, and then he says this, that the world would know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So we've been given his name. We've been entered into a covenant that's everlasting. 
our identity has been changed from the sons of man to sons and daughters of God. And then he says, God, that they would, the world would know that you loved them even as you loved me. So we are in covenant relationship with the Father through the Son. We have a new identity. We have a new life. We're a new creation. All things passed away. Everything became new. I mean, it's like the most amazing thing about this covenant that we have with Him is that it was His idea and not ours. It would make way more sense if we drew this up and got God to sign it off. If we came up with this idea, this plan, and said, God, can, would, would this be acceptable to you? Would you approve of this? But this was all His idea. It was all His doing. And you can tell that it has nothing to do with man creating this covenant because we would have put something in there that made us have to do something in order to receive. Because every time that we get something, we want to know that it's because we did something to earn it. You get brought up in that when you're little. You get told nothing in life is free. If you want something, you have to work for it. If something's too good to be true, it is. And we teach our kids these things and we set them up for legalism because if that's so ingrained in our mind, when we hear the true gospel presented in fullness and in truth and we hear the message of grace, it sounds too good to be true. There's nothing in it that I have to work for. And if I want it, I probably should have to do something to earn it. So what can I do? And legalism makes so much sense to our minds. I've said this before, you guys. Don't get mad at me. I know it's family service, okay? Teaching our kids about the one who gives presents. And teaching them that He is an old guy in the sky that is all-seeing and all-knowing and that He distributes to us things based on our behavior, whether we deserve it or not. He gives good things to those who are good and bad things to those who are bad. Predispositions ourselves when someone comes along and tells them about an old guy in the sky that's all-knowing and all-seeing and sees everything and keeps a list. Naughty or nice. Checking it twice and giving to people what they deserve based on their actions. It makes so much sense because we've predispositioned ourselves to it. That's why grace is so scandalous. It's why the Gospel means the truly great, exceedingly great news is because there's nothing in it that's required on our behalf to receive the grace. The grace was made a way, the way to grace was made before you were a thought in your parents' mind. Before you committed the first sin, God had already paid the price for every one you would ever commit. And all that's required on our behalf is what? That we believe and that we confess. What are we confessing? All we're confessing is that we need a Savior and that Jesus is our Savior and that He's the Lord of our lives because we believe in our heart that God raised Him, put Him on a cross for our sins and raised Him from the dead and that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's pretty amazing. That sounds like something that man couldn't come up with because it's just a little too easy. You think about it. You, you know what I'm talking about because if you've ever had someone present you with an amazing deal, the first thing you try to figure out in your mind is, okay, what's the catch? It's the truth. If someone comes along and says, hey, I have this, and it's this, and they talk about this thing, and you're like, oh my gosh, I must have it, and they say, cool, I'll give it to you. All right, what's the catch? You're walking through the mall. Hey, would you like a free cruise? You're like, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> nope, because it ain't free. 
I tell my wife that all the time. People, like, we get these things in the mail. You've won a trip to Cancun. I'm like, because there's always a hook. There's always a catch. And there's no hook with Jesus. In fact, the more we chew, the better it gets. The more we eat, the more we want. The better it tastes, the better it gets. The more we discover who we've been made to be, the more glorious we understand our salvation to be. That's what the Christian life is about, you guys. It's about learning and figuring out everything that we were brought into when we were taken from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the marvelous kingdom of His Son whom He loves. That's the Christian life. That's what revelation is. It's finding out all that was given to us in the moment when we became joint heirs with Christ. It's one kid saying to another, look what I found that belongs to us. Not look what I discovered that I worked for. And if you want it, you can pay $14.99 and receive the series. I'm not about against covering your costs, but I am saying that when we start building a platform based on the things that we've discovered and we start building a kingdom based on revelation that was freely given to us, that's when I believe the free revelation in our lives stops because freely receive, then freely give. It's the way it's supposed to work. As it flows in freely, it flows out freely. Don't withhold. Don't keep things so that you have something that people don't have so that they have to look up to you. Don't use what God's freely given you to, to parlay and lobby for a position with people. Here's the point. If you do that, you'll always know how you got there. See, that's what's so beautiful about knowing who I am in Christ is it destroys insecurity. It destroys it first. It destroys it with people and it destroys it with God, with people, because I know who I am in Christ. If, there is, if I have insecurity and jealousy, it's because I don't understand who I am in Christ. And so I found my identity in something else and I keep my identity by comparing myself to other people, usually finding my identity, I mean, usually comparing whatever it is I found my identity in. So if I'm a pastor, I find my identity and I find my approval by comparing myself to other pastors because my identity listen it's trust me it is not below a pastor to find his identity in something outside of Christ in fact it's one of the greatest temptations there is is to find your identity in anything but him but if I don't understand who I am I'll always see who I'm not in people if I don't know who I am in Christ and I don't understand who He created me to be and I don't see that my life lived was worth His life sacrificed, that knowledge should forever deal with insecurity and should, ever deal with, should forever deal with jealousy or inferiority if I truly understand and truly believe that His life sacrificed was worth my life lived. That He really looked at my life and who I would become in Him and who He created me to be and thought that me living that life out was worth Him sacrificing the life that He was given. That should forever deal with insecurity and jealousy because all it should make me do is understand that I am created amazingly, fearfully, wonderfully in His image perfectly. And that He has amazing things that He prepared beforehand that I should walk in. And if I do understand that, then I'm not threatened by people around me who are also gifted, who are also talented, and I don't find myself looking at who I'm not in them. I'm looking at who we are as one. See, if I don't have security in who I am in Christ, then I'll find it in something else and I'll have to defend that baby. And we can find it in a lot of things, you guys. We can find it in, in our work. We can find it in our parenting. We can find it in our relationships. We can find it in finances. We can find it in success in any area. We can find it in ministry. Where I have something that you need 
And I found my identity in that. Never fully giving you the full truth. Never fully giving you the full gospel because I need something to keep you coming back to me. You guys, it's wrong in any area of life. Now, do we need each other? Absolutely. Because as iron sharpens iron, so do people in in Christ. So do brothers, right? So does one friend sharpen another. And it's not good for man to walk alone. God spoke that, meaning it's true. And Jesus also said, bear each other's burdens, meaning there must be times where we have to come alongside and bear each other's burdens. It's why Jesus let Simon carry the cross for him, because he's our example in all things. It would never call us to do something he wasn't willing to first do himself. He was fully capable of carrying that cross to the hill. I promise. He walked on water. He parted seas. He reproduced food. He raised the dead. He could carry a cross to the top of a hill. But he allowed Simon to take it and carry it for him because he is our example in all things and because he wanted us to not be ashamed when the day comes that we need someone to come alongside and give us a hand. If Jesus did it, I promise it's okay for us. Why? Because there's not an ounce of pride in him. It's just pride that says, I don't need anybody. So if I know who I am and I understand who I am, why would I ever be insecure? Why would I ever be jealous? Why would I ever see who I'm not in somebody else rather than when I see someone who's gifted and talented, thank God for the giftings and talents that they have and welcome them into my life understanding that the two of us represent a more complete picture of Christ than one of us does alone. So much suspicion and gossip, accusation, and ruined relationships are just the result of insecurity. And every bit of insecurity stems from a lack of identity. And every lack of identity stems from a lack of understanding the covenant that I have and who I am in Christ. See, if you've ever been or been around an insecure person, especially a leader, Right, And you'll find that they're highly suspicious. They're highly offendable. They're slow to trust. Because they're insecure. Because they don't see who they are in Christ. And so they only see themselves for their abilities. And if somebody comes along that has an ability that looks something similar to theirs or maybe is even greater than theirs, they kind of keep that person away and they're suspicious of that person because they're not secure in who they are and they don't understand that they are where they are because God placed them there. See, uh, let me just say this to you. You can have a call of God on your life. I promise you that you will absolutely sidetrack and possibly even shipwreck it by trying to force it to come about before God places you and establishes you. 1 Peter 5.6 right, says, um, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. See, here's the thing. If I understand that I am who God created me to be and my security and my identity is found in Him, then I understand that everything that I'm called to do and everywhere that I am, I'm placed there by Him. And if I allow Him to exalt me, when I hum- if I humble myself and allow Him to exalt me in the proper time, I never have to worry about defending or keeping where He's placed me. But if I got there of my own, 
Now, I'm not saying that there's nothing required on our end, you know, sit back and be lazy and just wait for God to make everything happen. But I am saying there's a difference between that and conniving and manipulating and politicking your way into something. See, here's the problem. If you know that's how you got there, you're always worried that the next guy is coming after where you are by the same means. If you waited on God humbly and let Him exalt you, you understand that you got there by the hand of God placing you there and you're not worried about another man coming along and taking the position that you have. And that can be in a relationship, that can be in business, that can be in ministry, that can be in a lot of things. There's a security that comes from knowing that I'm His Son and I'm doing the things that He's called me to do. I remember when I was first pastoring, and I went through a really a, a hard period of time in my life, and there was things being said and, and things being taken way out of context and, and accusations made, and some of it just lies being told about things that I said or did or believed. And, and I remember feeling for a little while like I had to go and, and I had to set everything straight and I had to chase those things down and I had to make sure that everyone knew this is actually what I said or this is what I meant. This is the con. And I found myself wanting to do that. And I remember in the time of prayer, I remember God saying, Roy, did I ask you to do any of that stuff to get where you are? No. Okay, then why would you need to do those things to stay where I placed you? And I realized that if God called me into this position, that He would be my defender. That He would be my rear guard. That He would speak for me. That He would uphold me. And it was such a weight off my shoulders that I could just breathe and relax and realize I don't have to self-defend and self-preserve because I'm being defended and preserved by the One who placed me here. Because He didn't call me here to place me here and leave me to die on my own. And there's such a security, you guys, that comes with knowing that you are where you are because God called you there and placed you there. Don't try to make it happen early. So many people have a bad experience because they knew the calling on their life, but they didn't wait for the right timing. That's why Peter says, humble yourself. In other words, don't think more highly of yourself. It's hard sometimes to humble yourself because God is constantly speaking greatness over you. See, if God was a ridiculing Father that never ever spoke anything great over our lives, it would be easy to stay humble. But He doesn't do that. He actually speaks greatness over us. He calls us into things. He invites us into things. He shows us who He's made us to become. Through prophetic words, through ministry of the Holy Spirit within us, He will call us into things and call us things forth. And and you can have words and you can know that God has called you into something and it sometimes can be hard to stay humble. David's a great example of this because he gets called from a pasture. He gets brought into the home and in front of his brothers and in front of his father, he is anointed king. You understand, he was anointed king that day. Samuel the prophet anointed him and said that the, that the anointing of God was upon him and that he was now God's anointed man, that the anointing had already left Samuel. Remember, uh, Sam, or had already left Saul. Samuel was grieved and God comes to him and says, Samuel, how long will you grieve? Samuel so valued the presence of God that when it left another man, it caused him to grieve as if the man had died because he valued the presence of God that highly. And God had to come to him and say, Samuel, how long will you grieve?
I would much rather God have to come to me and say, how long will you grieve my presence leaving than to come to me and say, did you even notice that my presence left? That we would value His presence to the point where God would have to come and encourage us rather than to show us that it's no longer there. And He says, get up from sending you and go here and I'm going to anoint a new king. He's anointing David as king. So David in the presence of all of his brothers, in the presence of his father, David is anointed king and then he goes back out. And what does he do? He humbles himself before God and waits and in the right time, God exalts him. It would have been so easy for David to get an attitude and to try to make it happen early. And he would have absolutely missed everything that God had for him had he done that. And he would have been another Saul instead of the first David. It's why he wouldn't touch Saul when Saul was in front of him in the cave and he could have taken his life. It's why he wouldn't allow his men to touch him. Why? Because he wasn't trying to make anything happen on his own. Because if he would have taken the throne by the sword, he would have had to defend the throne by the sword. Anything gained has to be defended in the manner that it's gained. For the rest of your life, remember that whatever you gain will have to be defended in the manner that it was gained. If it's gained by trusting and following God, it'll be defended by trusting and following God. If it's gained any other way, it'll be defended in whatever way you choose. But just remember the promise of Jesus. The sword that you live by will be the sword you die by. You can just see so much of what Jesus said played out in the Old Testament. For you guys that are new, you maybe have never heard this, but we've talked about this before here. But Saul, when the Goliath is down in the valley and David is going to go fight him, offers David his sword and his armor. Why? Because he sees no other way for the giant to be slain than the sword. Why? Because he put his trust and his faith in the sword. David has his trust and his faith in the Lord, so he doesn't want anything to do with Saul's sword. He puts it on, he can't even move it. He says, I have not even tested these things. I can't take them with me. The only thing I can take with me into the battle are the things that have got me this far in life. The way that I got here is the way that I'm going there. I got here because God called me, anointed me, and placed me here. That's how I'm going to go into the valley. I'm not going to now decide to take your sword, O king. If that sword was capable of killing Goliath, he would have already been dead. It wasn't the sword. The sword wasn't the problem. It was the lack of understanding covenant, the lack of security and identity in in who they were in God that kept the Israelites from going down into the valley and doing what David did. So Saul, who lives by his sword, remember the way that Saul's life ends. He looks out into the battlefield and he sees that his sons have been slain. And what does he do? He takes that very same sword that he tried to get David to trust his life into, the very sword that he trusted and that he lived by, and he thrusts it up into his abdomen in the same sword that he lived by is a sword that he dies by, literally. And then Jesus comes along and tells Peter and his disciples, if you guys live by that sword, you'll die by that sword because whatever means you gain something by is the means you have to defend it by and it's also the means that it will be taken from you by. Forever. Take that to your job. Take that to your relationship. 
If you've earned the respect of your spouse by being a godly example, then all you have to do to keep the respect of your spouse is continue to be a godly example. But if you've gained it any other way, you'll have to work and keep it that way. If you've gained friendship with people by being who you are and being genuine and being loving and submitting your life, that's easy because you can do that every day for the rest of your life and never have to remember who you are before you walk into a room. But if you've gained friendship, favor, and influence by pretending to be something you're not, you'll have to keep it and you'll lose it by that same way. If you've gained a place in ministry because God called you and placed you there and opened the door for you, it says He'll open doors that no man can shut, shut doors that no man can open. But if you got there by your own working, by your own politicking, by your own manipulating, you'll have to stay there that way. And there will always be someone that comes along that's a better manipulator, a better politicker, and a better conniver. And you'll lose it the same way. Not only that, but the whole time you're there, you'll never have the peace to be able to not have to look behind your back and wonder who's coming. When we're actually following Jesus, the only thing that's promised to follow us is surely goodness and Mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When I'm following Him and I hear a noise behind me, I don't have to worry because it's just goodness and mercy following me around. I don't have to look over my shoulder in fear. I can look back with excitement because it's goodness and mercy. But if I'm not following Him, see, because the whole thing hinges on the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is the one who leads me. So every statement that follows is all hinged on the first statement being true in my life, and that is that He's my shepherd, that I'm following Him. And it says, and if I do this, and He lists all these things that are God's responsibility, the only responsibility in the 23rd Psalm for you is that God is your shepherd and that you do not fear. And one happens because of the other. When He's my shepherd, it's really easy to not fear. Why? His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. There's this understanding and this security that comes from following Him where I understand that I don't have to defend myself, that He'll defend me. That I don't have to look over my shoulder constantly worrying about what's following me because the only thing that is promised to follow me all the days of my life when I follow Jesus is His goodness and His mercy. Isn't that amazing? See, that'll let you lay your head down on your pillow at night and just go right to sleep. Because you're not worried that the calamity of yesterday is going to catch up with you tomorrow. You know that the same goodness and mercy that stalked you to bed are going to stalk you through your day tomorrow. (laughs) Think about it. You've got two stalkers. One's goodness and one's mercy. (laughs) They follow you all the days of your life. Right? You're a big deal. You're a bigger deal to God than you understand. You mean more to Him than you can comprehend. You are worth the life of His Son. You cannot begin to understand, we cannot begin to understand what that means. That Jesus was 
traded for me, that I was ransomed by His blood. That God looked down from heaven and saw my life lived and thought it was worth the life of His Son died. There's no way that we can begin to fathom and comprehend that. Understanding this will give us a re- it's, it's, the, it's, it's the security that comes when we know who we are in God that allows us to actually have covenant relationships with people here on earth because now all of a sudden I'm not doing things for a response. I'm doing them out of response because I'm responding to the love of the Father and I'm allowing that to flow through me in our friendship. See, the days of manipulation, the days of conniving, the days of using people are all gone when I find my identity in Christ because what more do I need from people that I haven't found in Him that I would need to manipulate you and do things to get you to do something for me? I have all that I need in Him. I don't need to manipulate you. I can actually just love you. I'm not saying nice things. Trey's not saying nice things to JC just so that she'll bat her eyes and give him a kiss on the cheek. She may do that, but that's not why he's doing it. He's doing it because what's in his heart is love for her. Not, if I do this, will you do that? That's not love. That's manipulation. If everything that I do is for response, I'm not actually loving. I'm just manipulating. And as soon as you stop responding the way that I want you to respond, I'll find someone else to love because I've now fallen out of love with you. What am I saying? I'm saying that the juice is no longer worth the squeeze. That's the truth. That's what most divorce, when you boil it down, comes down to in and outside of the church, is what I receive from you is no longer worth the effort it takes to get it. So I'll find somebody else that will give me what I was getting from you with less energy and effort on my part because they love me. What an absolute sham. Well, we've just fallen out of love with each other. You didn't fall into love to begin with. It was a choice that you made. There were things that you did and you stopped doing those and that was by choice too, whether you realized it or not. I bet if you start doing the things you were doing, you might start feeling some of the things that you felt. But it's easier just to start over. And... Marriage becomes disposable. Like cameras. The problem is is that when things become disposable, they soon become replaced with something altogether different. There was a time when everybody had a film camera. Then there was a time where everyone had a disposable film camera. And now there's a time where they hardly even sell cameras. And most pictures are taken with a completely different device because something easier and cheaper came along. When things become disposable, there's something else will come and take their place. We shouldn't be shocked when we see that happen with everything in every area of life. It's 12.04. I'm just going to close up with this. we got a whole... I was like, man, I might have to break this into two messages, and now I'm thinking I'm probably going to have to break this into three. <laughs> it's what you guys do to me. It's, you know what it is? Honestly, it's when, when, when we come here expecting, 
It's, it's what happens to the worship team when a bunch of people come expectant in worship. It draws something out of them. It draws on the anointing that God's placed in them. And they find themselves singing songs that have never come out of their mouths before and playing chords that they've never put together in a progression they've never heard because there's actually a draw made on them when people come expectant and hungry. And it's the same thing when I get up here and I start speaking. It's the hunger in you guys that just starts pulling on the anointing that God's placed on my life. And pretty soon I'm saying things that were never even close to anywhere in my notes. And I've got to go back, listen to the message later. And preach to myself. <laughs> then I correct myself online in my blog. I'm just kidding. I don't do that. You shouldn't either. <laughs> you guys, I'm just saying that, that our covenant should make a difference in the way that we live. It should actually make a difference in things big and little. But I actually will do things because of the covenant that I have that I wouldn't do before I understood the covenant that I have. This covenant and understanding of covenant should make a difference in the way that we live. It should give us a security and a place of belonging and an understanding that forever destroys insecurity, first with with the Father, but also with people. Next week we're going to talk about insecurity with the Father and how that's dealt with through the covenant that we have and through being in the name of His Son, Jesus. Because that's a big deal. Just listen. You don't have to make anything happen in life. You just have to be obedient. God's never called you to results. He's only ever called you to obedience. He said, if you will humble yourself before Me, in due time, I'll exalt you. In due time. See, there's one, one without the other is just as bad. If you're meeting someone at a restaurant, you're at the wrong restaurant on the right day, or you're at the wrong, on the wrong day at the right restaurant, both of those are going to be frustrating, disappointing experiences for you because you have to have both of them in order for it to work. You may have the right calling. You may know the job. You may know the position He wants to give you within the company. You may know the call of ministry He's placed on your life and the position that He's grooming you for and built you for and created you for. You may know the relationship that He desires for you to have with that woman or that man. But if you try to jump into it early because you understand what He's spoken to you and instead of humbling yourself and waiting for Him and you make it happen on your own, you'll have to defend it and keep it on your own for the rest of your life. And that's work. Man, that's work. So much better to be on the throne and know I'm only here by the hand of God. I'm only leaving by that same hand. God, I thank You for who You are. I thank You for Your Word. That, that God, I'm just so thankful that we have this covenant with You, God. That, that, that the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. That the, that the man who said, I am the door, was nailed to a cross and had thorns shoved into his head so that the blood would once again be on the posts and on the lintel so that all who passed through would pass through judgment and would enter into You. God, I just ask that that You would let us, even throughout this week, God, that You would lead us into times with You, God, where You speak to us who we are, who You've created us to be, God, where we find our security and our identity rooted and grounded even deeper in You. God, I ask that You would continue to reveal to us all that we came into as we were taken from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. 
God, that we would not wander around the castle like orphans, defending and stealing, but that we would learn what it is to be a prince in Your house and see all that You have for us. I thank You for that in Jesus' name.